Let's pray. Father, only because of you and your work can it be well with our souls. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, our prayers turn to praise. We thank you for the privilege of being together and worshiping you. Would you be the teacher? Would you dig out our ears and give us the ears of disciples? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad that each of you has gathered to worship with us, uh, whether present in the room or via live stream. We delight if you're visiting, uh, you've honored us with your coming amongst us, and we hope that you sense we're honoring you uh, as well. Uh, you, along with each of us, bears the image uh, of the invisible God who made us, and that makes each of us incredibly valuable, whether we believe it or not. And you are valuable, each of you, to him and to us. Uh, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, I'm noticing that in a day when everything seems to be becoming more and more fluid, folks seem to be thirstier and thirstier looking for more and more places to find something to drink that satisfies. I mean, just look at the advertising, the rebranding, all the different potions uh, that are sent our way. We're really not all that far from the Wild West and the medicine shows and medicine wagons. Our culture creates new drinks, new labels, yet the phrase satisfaction guaranteed uh, doesn't quite have the zing that it used to, does it? I want to suggest uh, to remind, really, that it's important for each of us to know, to think about, to ponder what it is that we seek. We who are at UPC are not trying to come up with new drinks. I promise. We come up with new events, new life groups, and we hope sometime soon with additional staff. That's our prayer. But our message, our loves, and our devotions are ancient and consistent, and we believe them lastingly satisfying when understood on their own terms. We don't believe that the present, the new, is always better. We don't think we're able to change any or everything and to make it into something new. As the social sciences have grown in gravitas from the early days, even still sort of there in the 60s when I was in the university, uh, and have now come to be the darling of our culture, uh, a phrase has crept in that I hear Christians saying it as much as non-Christians. Perception is reality, or perception defines reality. I beg to differ. Perception, if you're looking for things of true significance in a way that allows those things to be seen as they really are, is a wonderful thing. And your perceptions can move you towards reality. 
But perception, when focused on lesser things, may distort reality. It all depends on what you're looking at and looking for. Can you lead you to create fictions? To call the unreal real and the false true? Now, the viewpoint I'm expressing, I hope you sense, I'm not trying to hide anything, assumes there's a reality and a way to see it. A lot of people argue about that today. We believe the ultimate reality is an eternal being who made everything that we call is and has revealed himself to humankind. Uh, We believe that he is none the greater for having created everything that he created because he is greatness in his essence without anything he made. But we believe that he gave us significance and made us greater than we would have ever dreamed in creating us. We believe each of us, each of you, have that significance and value. And we believe that such a belief is eminently reasonable. Eminently reasonable. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest writers and thinkers of the 20th century, professor at Oxford, then at Cambridge, uh, had so many correspondents. It was amazing. The man gave two hours a day, month after month, year after year, to answer letters from little boys and girls to teenagers to college students to you name it around the world. Anybody that wrote him, he found time to answer. He had a correspondent going back and forth with him who was a graduate student at Columbia University. And he wrote Lewis that he'd begun to question the validity of human beings being able meaningfully to reason. Lewis' answer was two sentences. Your letter finds me in the midst of exams, and a complete reply is impossible now. If you are losing your faith in reason, why did you use all those reasons to tell me so? And while there is much to reason about, most everything about us reveals, if we but look, that we are made to do so. We just can't stop. An ultimate being is the reality that gives meaning and significance to us and our reasonings. Therefore, with good reasons, I ask you to listen as we spend some minutes this morning learning from a letter by Jesus chosen Apostle Peter that for centuries has helped millions live meaningfully and especially a letter loved by those in the many difficult times and places in which human beings find themselves. We'll read Peter's words. Uh, If you're new to us, we're finishing up the last couple of paragraphs of the letter that we call 1 Peter, chapter 5. I'm going to read it in sections first verses 6 and 7, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. What's Peter saying? Under this heading, I simply want to say Peter's saying that God, whose hand is over all, He's sovereign. 
dominion over everything is his calls you to his humble plan. Why is it a humble plan? We've been singing about it. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus on a colt, a young donkey, donkey coming in to a triumphal entry, only to be crucified days later by some in the crowd cheering that day too. Called to a humble plan, and God so cares for you that at the right time, the last time, when Jesus is revealed in fullness, God will lift you up. And so given that it's Palm Sunday, we read earlier from Matthew's rendering of Palm Sunday, I want to frame these two paragraphs from Peter's letter by thinking about Peter the man and what he had been through in the change from a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee to being in some ways the leader of Jesus' 12 disciples. And thinking of how Peter, who experienced not only Palm Sunday with Jesus, but so much more, became the man who was faithful, though he was unfaithful along the way, that could be used of the Holy Spirit to write these words from God to us. Think about Peter's learning humility. He gained this kind of knowledge about Jesus. He came to understand the earth-shaking realities that Palm Sunday and what came in the days after brought to planet earth. Some words that Peter may or may not have read, he certainly knew the realities from the scriptures behind them. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Don't let Jesus, the Christ, get small. The eternal Son of God, now the God-man, through whom God created the world along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Peter did read Isaiah's words about Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Don't think therapy. The Wonderful Counselor is the head general's aide who is the counselor for the best plan of war. He's the one who sets the agenda with the general for how the battle is fought. And this is the most wonderful war general. And amazingly, Palm Sunday, he's a general of peace. And on the cross, he's a general of peace. And his name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Mighty Father. What? Yes, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, one in three. And he shall be called the Prince of Peace. 
And Peter learned the Old Testament scriptures, and after Palm Sunday, he knew that God's ultimate Prince of Peace didn't come on a stallion of war, but like King David, when peace was there, rode a donkey as the king, as a man after God's own heart. At the core of Jesus' message that is that he rides that beast that was the beast of peace, not war, and that resonates with the way Jesus responds to the political leaders who would ultimately take him to his death. The king is God coming to bring peace, to soon after cleanse the temple because the place where everyone was welcome, the court of the Gentiles, it had become a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer for all the ethnicities, all the nations. Peter understood that Jesus didn't have to come humbly. Remember that Peter was there in Gethsemane. Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, to Judas, friend. Wow. Judas, friend. Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Guess who? Peter. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will once more send me more than, that he at once sent, will send me more than 12 legions of angels? He didn't have to come in peace. But Jesus finally says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? His crucifixion, that it must be so. Peter understood that Jesus didn't need to weep over the city. He could be angry at it. But Peter learned, like Jesus did, to weep over the city and to weep over himself. Luke 19, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I think Peter, in addition to talking about suffering the way he has in the earlier chapters, focusing on believers who are actually suffering for the name of Christ, I think Peter may broaden it a bit here, and that it's all kinds of anxieties, all kinds of fears, all kinds of things that unsettle us, God's caring, sovereign hands shows that all the anxieties and cares must both lead us to the same need. We are not in bearing anxiety simply to tap our foot or our hand or grit our teeth. The psalmist said, in waiting, wait on God. You have a choice when you're waiting. You don't have a choice whether to wait. I had to wait on a number of things this week. Steve, you know that. <laughs> I was not happy. But I was deliberately not just tapping. I was praying, Lord, find the way to put some of these things together. In waiting, we wait on the Lord. 
We trust Him to use our anguish, our pain, our thirst for more, to use our sense of loss to strengthen our sense of find, of finding the most significant things, the only place where they are to be found. Finding that what we need is in Him and in His promise of on the last day sharing His glory in Christ, God's glory in Christ with us. Uh, We get so upended so easily, don't we? I do. I'm old enough to have had life throw me curves I didn't know existed. C.S. Lewis, uh, in an essay uh, titled On Living in an Atomic Age, when everybody was uptight about the atomic bomb, for good reasons, wrote this. He says, we should not exaggerate the novelty of our situation. Nothing has changed. Rather, our new circumstances, quote, remind us forcibly of the sort of world we are living in and which during the prosperous years before 1914, Lewis was in the trenches in France in World War I, and remind ourselves forcibly about what the world is. During the prosperous years before 1914, we were beginning to forget. We have been waked from a pretty dream. And now we can begin to talk about realities. What's going on in Ukraine is awful. But it's not new. And when it ceases, there will be more. Because that is reality in a world in rebellion. And so what Peter calls us to in this text and in this letter is to wake up, to be sober, to think clearly. And that's why he writes in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So wake up, resist, stay the course. So be sober and watchful, Your adversary seeks to devour, resist, knowing that in spite of anxieties, failures, suffering, God has called you to eternal glory. Oh, did Peter have to learn watchfulness and a whole lot more? Think about his life. If you know it, if you don't, it's a great time to start reading the Gospels. Sober, mindful, and watchful. In Gethsemane, Jesus took Peter and James and John of Zebedee And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And you remember what happened? They went to sleep. And he woke them up. And they went to sleep. And I'm sure as Peter wrote these words, Jesus' words, could you not watch with me one more hour? And Peter, knowing his own weakness, not being a pompous leader, says, let's learn together. To be faithful in the difficulties. Your adversary, Peter and the adversary, Peter and his readers had likely seen or talked to people who had seen lions devour 
Lions swallow, that's the literal Greek word, the prey that they prowl around looking for in the gladiatorial arenas of the Roman world. You didn't have to go to Africa to watch a lion eat something. And Peter had a lot to learn about being watchful and knowing what to look at, what reality was. Remember when Jesus began in Matthew 16 talking about to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. If you ever think you're hearing God talk to you harshly, Remember how he spoke to Peter, whom he loved. And then remember how he restored him and the hope that is yours as well. And Peter's betrayal at the trial, stand firm, be faithful. He promised everything, and Jesus had to tell him ahead of time, before the cock crows, you're going to betray me. Peter learned about anxieties and about restoration after scrambling at risk to be nearby Jesus at the high priest's house during Jesus' trial. That's when he betrayed him. I mean, we're torn, aren't we? I mean, Peter, on the one hand, wanted to stay close, wanted to do something, wanted to not see it happen. But when the pressure came towards him, I don't know the man. That's us. That's what we fight in the pressures. And the pressures probably aren't going to lessen before they increase on believers. But oh, how I love John 21, 15 and following when they, after the resurrection, had finished breakfast. Jesus uh, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he asked him twice more. But each time he says, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. And brothers and sisters, this letter is Peter saying, restored I will. And it's us saying, he did. And look at the beauty of it. Peter learned that Jesus was more than enough and would satisfy his thirst. Matthew 16, Peter replies when Jesus asks who people were saying that he is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll see in a moment that I think sometimes when we get to heaven, you can find out if I'm right. I'm not going to uh, go too far with it, but I think we really misinterpret that verse. If you read the scripture, Jesus is the rock, and he's saying, Peter, you're going to be like me. You're going to be a rock for those around you. And Peter comforts us by acknowledging that we need to be awake, watchful, firm in faith. And 
Trusting in Jesus or not, we can be beaten down by the basic realities, hurts, disease, failures, death in a broken world. Such understanding and such honoring of life, in spite of all those things, honoring of every life from the womb to the grave, only comes from Jesus. In the midst of the pain, believers are the one. In the midst of difficulties, people's, Jesus, believers are the ones who picked up the babies that the Romans left on the hillside and raised them up because they believed what I said we believe. Every life is valuable. There is no other philosophy on earth, no other framework. Without that, it's up to the powerful to decide when they want to annihilate the weak or the disagreeable. That's the only alternative. There are no others. It's been proven. It is eminently reasonable. Without Jesus, Ecclesiastic first Ecclesiastes' first cry, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is reality. But God has shown us that that's not the ultimate reality. In depths of hurts and failures, disease and death and hopes dashed, it's not always easy to be straightforward about our fears and struggles. Sometimes we're not very honest with one another, even those that we love the deepest, uh, the real fears in our life. Uh, I read about a farmer who was in court uh, suing for medical damages after an accident, and uh, the opposing counsel challenged him, saying, but didn't you say to the sheriff at the scene, immediately after the accident, I've never felt better in my life? The farmer said, well, that morning I got up, hitched my mule, put my hound dog in the wagon, we got over the rise in the road when this big car plowed into me. My mule was knocked to one side of the road, my dog to the other. I was pinned under the wagon seat. When the sheriff got there, he seen my mule had broke his leg, so he shot the mule. He went over to the dog, seen he was bad hurt, and shot him in the head. Then he came over to me, and that was when I said, I've never felt better in my life. And we don't even need that to hide our hurts, do we? A lot less will keep us from betraying our pains to those that care the most about us. And God cares more than anybody. So my point in that story is not just a little breath, but to say that context has a lot to do with whether we admit to our suffering. Context has a lot to do with what we decide to make of it. And Peter, in the final verses, gives us the ultimate context. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Summarizing where we've been and pointing to the end. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was, who was at Babylon, likely Rome where Peter spent much time, who is likewise chosen like they are chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, whom many think wrote down Peter's renderings of his life with Jesus in the gospel according to Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all 
of you who are in Christ. So Peter's saying acknowledge that dominion is God's alone. And therefore love now all who have ultimate peace in Christ, even as you call others to have what we have only by gift. Peter didn't labor alone. He needed brothers and sisters. He had Silvanus. We don't know whether Silvanus was a scribe who wrote the letter down or whether the letter was delivered by Silvanus in the way that Paul sent his letters with approved messengers that people would know that they are true. And he greets from Rome and calls them to treasure one another, a kiss of love, a formal reminder of some kind in real time. Churches have practiced it in different ways. I'm not pushing for one here. But it really would be wise. I need it more often than I admit. If in our gathering somewhere we would hug one another. We would hold one another. We would touch one another. To say the relationship we share because of Christ means that we are both, each of us, all of us more special than we could have ever dreamed. We can't believe it. And so we speak a reality by what that symbol means. Peter and the true grace of God, we've called this series that. He learned that grace is not a small thing. It's forgiveness. Seven times Peter asked Jesus. The phrase can be translated 77 times or seven times 70. Take your pick. The point is, it's a perfect number multiplied. You never stop. Love one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. The grace of God is found in living in Christ who becomes your life and is the only way to have the grace of God. And that's a hard saying. Remember when Jesus talked about eat my body, drink my blood, and afterwards some of the disciples, the broader group, the 70 or so, went away. This is a hard saying. How can, how can we feed just on you? How can you be everything to us? And in John 6, 67, Jesus turns to the 12 after some have left and says, do you want to go away as well? Ugh. Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. In C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, Jill Pole, a daughter of Eve, which means she's like us, finds herself caught between fear and desire. Aslan, the ultimate Lion King, if you don't know the books, has appeared and stands between her and a stream of life-giving water. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Will, will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. 
said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Exodus 17.2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them in the wilderness, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Ed Clowney reminds us that in this formal setting, God stood before Moses on the rock as if he were guilty. And he let Moses, with the staff, strike the foundation underneath him, and the rock broke. And out of the striking, the water flowed. The rock, which was identified both with God in the Old Testament and his position. And Paul says this in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ, who stood on the stone who hung on the cross and God struck him and living waters flowed. Oh dear, said Jill coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And Aslan still says it, there is no other stream. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, even the way you wrote your word is a wonder as it spread before us. Your story is one story and we are a part of it. Help us whether in, we're in belief or running or confused to dare to take a step closer and then to drink of your goodness and your glory and your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.